Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jagman. I'm Eva Garmendia. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Welcome, everybody. In today's episode, we're featuring an interview that Eva did with Dr. Christina Ospier, who came to give a talk at a UAC seminar on September 6th. Dr. Osphere worked in Cambodia on the National Action Plan Against Antimicrobial Resistance there, so we got the chance to talk to her about her experiences and her opinions and how she felt it went. And I think, personally, it's a very interesting interview. I hope you agree. Welcome, Christina. So today we have Christina Oisberg with us, and I'm very happy that you decided to be part of the AMR studio. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience so they know a little bit where are you right now and what are you doing? Yes, my, my name is Christina Uspia. I am a veterinary epidemiologist and I've been working for the past three years as a team leader for FAO Animal Health based in Cambodia, where I've been supporting the government of Cambodia in strengthening the overall animal health services, including the work to combat antimicrobial resistance. Very nice. Right now you are back in Sweden, right? So you are not actively working in Cambodia any longer? No, I have some consultancies still in Southeast Asia, but I'm also engaged with the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences at the moment um, with some AMR research. Can you tell us a little bit of the path that led you to be working in AMR? So what is your background? What do you study? And how come you actually took an interest to work in antimicrobial-related issues? I'm a veterinarian, um, as I mentioned, so of course I've been working a lot with clinical treatment of animals, starting with that, and then in 2007 I started working for FAO, so I started working more with development and working with infections in low and middle income countries. And I started doing research on zoonotic diseases in Southeast Asia in 2011. And at that time, I collected Campylobacter samples to be tested with Campylobacter. And, and there was already at that time some indications that some of the Campylobacter bacteria were resistant uh, to some of the antibiotics used. And um, that kind of generated some interest. And then when the WHO came out with the Global Action Plan, I realized 2015, right? that would really start Mm -hmm. sort of putting much more international interest into antimicrobial resistance. And when I started working for FAO in Cambodia, there was already the the Fleming Fund project on antimicrobial resistance. So I was heading that project in parallel with some of the other animal health projects. And then I got the opportunity to work very closely with the government of Cambodia in strengthening the efforts towards antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, because you you come here to UAC because you're going to present your work that you actively have worked on implementing the National Action Plan Against Antimicrobial Resistance in Cambodia. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience? Because this was like the WHO put out recommendations or this like big document in 2015. Mm-hmm. How long did it take till actually Cambodia started thinking about implementing the national action plan and how these first stages of realizing this is something that we need to take on from a more official level happen? In fact, there was resistance to antimalarial drugs in Cambodia already in 2015 at the Cambodia-Thai border. And at that point, the Ministry of Health in Cambodia, they started seeing that this would likely become a bigger problem and started developing a national action plan for antimicrobial resistance. But that plan was mainly focusing on human health. There was a small section on animals, but with very limited involvement of the animal health sector experts into the writing of the national action plan. 
So when the Global Action Plan came out and other member countries committed to actually develop One Health National Action Plans, also Cambodia saw a need to have a stronger multi-sectoral national action plan that really involved the agriculture sector in full and also the environment sector. So did they actually work using the previous action plan they had written mostly based in human health and then implemented this more environmental and more uh, agricultural side? Or was it like more, okay, let's start from a clean slate. We need to look at this problem more from the One Health perspective and then write a national action plan. How did it go? The, the, the first national action plan that was mainly targeting human health was implemented for two years, yeah, 2015 already. to 2017. And then when the commitment came from Cambodia, in addition to the other countries, the decision was taken to do new situation analysis first, mm-hmm. to look at how had the situation changed and also look at the situation in animals, mm. in agriculture in general, in the environment. So that was a start off point, the situation analysis being a guiding document for, for the development of a new national action plan that was much more multisectoral. Of course, there were components taken from the previous plan, mm, mm-hmm. but the development of the multisectoral one was pretty much starting from a blank sheet to look at what are the actual needs specific for Cambodia. Did you actively work with people? I don't know the timeline so much about other Southeast Asian countries. Mm. Did you work with people that had experience doing this in other countries? Or do you feel like you were a little bit isolated and alone trying to develop this in a country with no hands of experience to actually help you with that? There is the tripartite, the FAOWHOA tripartite has developed guidelines for how to develop the national action plans. Um, So that one was used, of course, and then also regional and global expertise from the tripartite assisted Cambodia in developing that national action plan. So it was a combination, I would say, of experts that had been involved in developing plans in other countries Mm -hmm. and the national expertise. Yeah, because I would imagine that the regional, local context of different countries would actually make it very different to develop and implement these plans because uh, these plans are not supposed to happen only in, let's say, low and middle income countries or Southeast Asian countries or African countries, but also places in Europe will also have plans. And you would imagine that these plans are radically different in the different contexts. It takes a set of specific skills and specific knowledge to actually take the most and make the most out of a plan that's going to be applied, for example, in Cambodia. Absolutely. I mean, it's not possible to take a plan from another country and just say that we will implement this one in a new country because it's very much depending on the local context, the local expertise, the current capacity. I mean, how much capacity building do you have to put into the plan? Also to do a stakeholder mapping and analysis. What are the stakeholders in that specific country? Where do we have more experienced labs that can function as reference laboratories, for example? So, yes. It has to be guided and written, I would say, by national experts. It has to be led by the government itself, because this is a plan that is owned by the the national government. Mm -hmm. And also that if it's written by the national government and has high level political support, it's much more likely that there will be sufficient funds and sufficient kind of support to implement the national action And plan. what about the status or the credibility of the plan, right? Like how do you get the different parts that need to actually actively change the ways they do things, behaviors, their stewardship, 
to actually believe you have to do this. It's that how the authority works in Cambodia. Do they actually say, okay, the government is telling us to do this, we shall do this? Or is there a little bit of uh, resistance to the change that comes with the National Action Plan? I would say very much of the changes come with the cost. And if you're working in in a low and middle income country, the funding sources are very, very, very limited. Mm -hmm. So I would say that is very often the biggest constraint is then sufficient amount of funds to implement these changes. Many of countries like Cambodia also have a very hierarchical system. Mm. So decisions are normally taken by the directors or higher levels. And if directions are given by people at higher level, normally those directions will actually be implemented. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, it's difficult for uh, ministries mm-hmm. and directors of different departments in Pampen to actually tell people in provincial hospitals what they should be doing because that is very much governed independently also of Pampen. Regional, and yeah. in particular, it's very tricky to reach out to the private sector mm. because they are, of course, operating much more independently. Mm-hmm. Um, so the private clinics, the private veterinarians, for example, how do you actually reach out to them with the information and how do you reach out to them to change their practices. So with this we can perhaps move on and a little bit talking about the challenges that you have faced both developing and implementing this plan. For how long is now being implemented or is it now being implemented or was that? It's, it's, um, the final version is not yet endorsed by the government but some parts are already being implemented and uh, of course, the difficulty is in getting sufficient amount of funds and it was difficult to do the prioritisation. What actions of that plan were the first priority actions to be taken? Um, it's been tricky to develop a good monitor and evaluation framework for the plan. So what are the indicators you should mm. look at to actually measure progress? What is feasible? What is realistic? When it comes to like the short time frame of five years, where can you actually reach within a five-year period? looking at the current capacity and the current available Mm. human resources. Yeah, because I checked a very recent publication of yours that is looking at the prevalence of resistant organisms in Cambodia, playing that, that you actually looked at what has been published before, Mm. what is the rates of resistance that are reported. And I, reading that paper, what I felt is that there is a lack of information there, right? Mm. Like, we know it's there, it's probably high, but we don't have enough information to know how high it is, right? Yeah. So that's Mm. something that perhaps should be prioritized in a way that you first need to know what's the situation in the country in order to change things or to implement follow-up steps, right? And that review, because that was a national review of antimicrobial resistance in Cambodia that was done by the AMR Technical Working Group, which is Mm -hmm. a technical working group that is sorting under Ministry of Health, but also has Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries and Ministry of Environment as part. And then, of course... UN organizations and some NGOs Mm -hmm. in academia are also part of that group. So the idea was, as part of the situation analysis, to actually look at published data. What do we have and what summary can we say? What kind of tendencies can we see from that? And yes, there is a lack of surveillance data, in particular in agriculture. When the review was done earlier this year, there were no studies out yet in the environment, for example. But it's not only generating surveillance data, it's also what you do with the surveillance data. Mm -hmm. So how do you use the surveillance data to do risk assessment, to make sure you do treatment guidelines that reflect the current resistance situation? Mm -hmm. And that, that you do frequent reviews 
of those guidelines based on new surveillance. So yeah. the guidelines will also actually... So it's not you make it, you put it, and then you forget about it and think that it's going to work just because... Yeah. yeah, and surveillance is just one part of the work that is needed. So you need to do surveillance. You need to do awareness raising mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that people working in healthcare, they are aware of antimicrobial resistance, that actually samples are collected. Because that's a huge problem in Cambodia, that very few clinical samples are collected, which means that you have no clue about the resistance pattern. In particular, in animal health services, there are so few samples collected in normal clinical service that we have no idea. Mm. All the data we have is actually from research studies and nothing from normal Mm. clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And then you have to work on legislation, which is another totally different aspect. How do you change the antimicrobial use? How do you make sure it's governed by the national legislation? Mm. So I would say surveillance is one part. Yeah, you definitely. You need to work with the awareness, legislation, the governance, the practices to have like a proper holistic approach. So in such a complex, I would say, and challenging environment, what it is that you guys uh, prioritize first when working on this? Well, one was to set up national surveillance program so that you had an ongoing surveillance focusing on the prioritized pathogens like the glass ones Mm -hmm. and FAO has also put a guide for for animal health surveillance that you should focus on Campylobacter, Salmonella, E. coli and Enterococcus. Mm -hmm. Um, So focusing on those pathogens and have a surveillance system that runs over time so you can actually measure differences over time as well. So that was one priority. One is to strengthen the university curriculum for training of professionals, exactly, of doctors, of nurses, Mm -hmm. so that you get that early in your education, that you know about antimicrobial resistance and then that you get a good education on how to treat your animals and how to treat your patients. And then, of course, legislation is another important part to at least start looking at it, to start working at it. When you mean legislation, just so our listeners can have an idea, do you mean, for example, prohibiting the sales of antibiotics without prescription? That's something that could be legalized in a way. Or what are the ways I'm thinking, for example, I know in some countries there is a lot of paybacks from the pharmaceutical industry to the doctors when they prescribe. So you could basically ban those type of things Mm -hmm. as well. So what other type of legislative work can be done towards uh, AMR? Loads. (laughs) Loads. <laughs> I mean, one is to prohibit sale of antibiotics without some kind of prescription. Mm-hmm. Currently in Cambodia, you can buy antibiotics anywhere without a prescription. So at least have some kind of professional, animal human health professional that actually decides what yeah, antibiotics that should be used. used. Exactly, prescribes it. Regimes and all this. Yes. Yeah. So that's one part of it. And to control, for example antimicrobial use as prevention of diseases, as growth promotion mm-hmm. in animals is another one. Maybe limit the use of the critically important antibiotics defined by WHO. So do some prioritization. Of, exactly. Yeah. You could start putting, like India has put red labels on those critically important antibiotics on all the packaging. Colistin. <laughs> yes, exactly. Showing people, oh, this is the one that it should be the last resource antibiotics. Mm. Can you limit that somehow? Another thing you need to do when it comes to legislation is to harmonize it across different laws. Because many countries, for example, Cambodia, has 
one law that is the health law and one law that is sorting and the Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry and Fisheries. And if you don't have the same restrictions within those two laws, it means that if you prohibit sale of, of antibiotics mm. without prescription in the health law, you can still buy it freely for, yeah, of course, for animal uh, health. Mm. So it's also about so understanding exactly to have a harmonized legal system across the country. And how has it been working with the government directly on this? Has it been a smooth ride or? <laughs> I mean, it's always challenging. It's been challenging to get the different sectors working together. So when I started working in Cambodia in 2016, there was very little involvement of the agriculture sector and environmental sector mm. in the AMR work. So very much efforts were put into getting The different ministries talk together, collaborate, mm. share data with each other and have some kind of transparency where they feel comfortable in actually sharing the information. The monthly meeting with the AMR Technical Working Group have been absolutely crucial, I would mm. say, because those meetings serve as information sharing platforms and also make sure that people have the possibility to meet and inform each other of projects coming up, of new surveillance guidelines that have been developed, and also discuss those with a larger number of experts in the same room. So, yes, it has been challenging and it still is challenging. And also, like in many countries, the human health side is very much advanced of the agriculture side and the environmental side. And then sometimes difficult for the human health side to see the benefits of collaborating with agriculture side or with environmental side because there is not so much knowledge yet yeah so they uh, need in to, the other sectors they need to talk to each other and they see that they might have much more things in common and might be affected each other much more than they actually previously thought yes uh, and also that they all see the benefits of collaborating and uh, that part i would say has been a bit tricky But what I've seen, which has been fantastic, is from when we started really working with antimicrobial resistance in the agriculture side in 2016, and there was extremely little knowledge and capacity in mm. the agriculture sector on antimicrobial resistance. And just during the past three years, we've seen an enormous increase in understanding and capacity at the national laboratories in actually doing antibiotic susceptibility testing and also in, in understanding where the needs are in Cormier. So a lot of progress. Enormous progress. So that's good. That's a positive note. Even though things are hard, but still mm. things can change and can get to a better place. Yes, and I think as the UN, we have very much been a facilitator. So WHO and FAO have been working very closely together in Cambodia and trying to call for meetings, consultations, where we invited people from different sectors. And by forcing mm. people to collaborate, by now, it comes naturally. Yeah, so you, so you first like have to force it, but now they do want to talk to each other and they do want to hear everybody, someone else's point of view on this issue and this other issue. Yes. That's, that's very nice. <laughs> yes, our role has very much been in kind of facilitating these discussions and making sure that the stone starts rolling 
and now it's almost rolling by itself. That's great. That's a very good thing to hear. Yeah. Mm. Good. It's really valuable your experience as you know working. We always talk about yeah, these national social products are important. We also talk here about the differences in context. How do that makes such a more difficult work because you cannot just like move things as you said from one country to another country and you need to work locally and the context is different in some countries they don't talk to each other and they might not know about it so it's great to talk to you and get to know these experiences i'm a little bit curious more about the communication side because here we talk about you know communicating amr and you point that out that it was uh, a challenge and at the beginning that you have to bring all these actors to know about amr and to learn more and to kind of make them have it as a present thing in their work lives mm. can you talk a little bit the experience about communicating this to them do you work with a team that specializes only in communicator strategies did you have to test and try different strategies of communication till something actually worked what is your experience in that regard good question we we working very much particularly for antibiotic awareness week Yeah, um, because that has been really a focus then on reaching it's big, out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We actually launched it in the Antibiotic Awareness Week last year. This podcast launched it during that week, so we kind of use it as a backdrop to come to life. <laughs> yeah, and in it, it, in Cambodia, it's been important since 2016. Events for that they have been organized mm. in collaboration between. Ministry of Health and, yeah. and the mm-hmm. Ministry of Environment, Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries to actually get them working together. Mm-hmm. And it's been targeting both people in the human health sector, like hospital staff, but also people in the communities providing animal and human health services in food markets, in open food markets, in slaughterhouses. So different settings mm-hmm. to reach out to different kind of stakeholders. And of course, for that, we have provided different kind of materials mm-hmm. targeting the specific stakeholders. The tripartite has developed a very good communication toolkit that is available on the website. Mm-hmm. So some, we'll leave links up for this so people can actually yes, yes, it. that one is really good. So, so some of that material has been translated into Khmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been able to use that almost directly as it is, and some material has been developed specifically for Cambodia. Mm-hmm. For communication, we also organize some events. We organize, for example, a national AMR conference to present scientific data on AMR to reach out to policymakers, and we also held that at universities, so we could invite students mm-hmm. into that. Um, I would say very much of the work initially was on raising awareness on communication, on explaining the difference between antimicrobial residues and antimicrobial resistance. Okay. Because there was and is still a very big confusion between the two. Is it because the terms are so close? It, it's it's partly because of how it translates into Khmer language. Okay, yeah. But it's also generally a big fear of residues, of chemicals, rather than resistant bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand. So it's also to, to contamination uh, through chemicals rather than the effect of a bacteria that might be resistant. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. So it's also a matter of providing information. Where are the actual biggest risks, which is in the resistant bacteria, not in antimicrobial residues? Yeah. So there have been some misunderstandings mm-hmm. that we've had to clarify and go out with very basic information first for for animal health professionals and human health professionals but then to the communities and to the farmers for example so do you think the community as a whole 
has a better understanding of AMR right now in Cambodia than when you joined Cambodia three years ago, at the general level, kind of speaking? Um, community, I would say, not yet. Maybe in some communities where there have been targeted activities. At the national level, definitely. Mm-hmm. Their awareness and knowledge has increased enormously. And to some extent at the provincial level, so head of provinces at that level. But when it comes to community level, there's still a lot of work remaining to do. Of course, there's always more things to do. But yeah. very interesting that you, you actively have work on this. is very nice. I think we need to wrap up the interview. But I love talking to you about this. Is there anything that you would like to tell our audience? Something you've been working on, some projects that you are going to start now that you would like to share with us? I think when it comes to curbing antimicrobial resistance, the most important part to work with is infection prevention and control and biosecurity. It's actually to prevent infections. I was talking exactly today about this with someone because I was looking in Twitter. I follow a lot of science communication tweet accounts and there was uh, one that was talking about, okay, let's explain why bacteria become resistant. And then I was super interested. I just read the whole thread. And then it was like, yeah, they become resistant because of that, but it will explain. And then it says, okay, and our ways to fight this resistance are, and then they were listing things, and they were saying, use less antibiotics, stewardship, try to find new antibiotics. And I kept reading and I missed, okay, but where's about not getting infections? Because mm. that should be the first thing mm. that everybody thinks about. If we reduce the amount of infections, mm. then we don't need to use antibiotics mm. whatsoever. Mm. So this is like exactly such an important point that I hope people really understand that this prevention part it's essential in order to get somewhere. How is that part actually in Cambodia? There's an enormous amount of work left to do. I mean, in overall, uh, animal husbandry farm, biosecurity, and in hospital, uh, infection prevention and control mm. with very little isolation of patients. And there are lots of resistant bacteria being spread within the hospital environment. Yeah. So I would say that is key. That's number one. Work with prevention of infection first. Then, of course, in parallel, you have to work with better use and consumption of antimicrobials to use this right kind of antimicrobials for the right duration, the right administration route, and, and then, in parallel, continue to do surveillance to monitor what's happening with the resistance to guide or provide information to guidelines to make sure that the guidelines contain mm. up-to-date information on what antimicrobials are the ones that are most likely to function or to work mm-hmm. in treating infections. And I would also say that it's important to keep the antimicrobials for treating sick animals and humans. The misunderstanding is very much so we should stop treating animals. Absolutely not. Sick animals are unhappy animals and it's totally against animal welfare not to treat sick animals. We need to keep antimicrobials to treat sick animals and sick humans. But when we treat, we have to treat in a good way. In a control. That is actually yeah. controlling the infection and not creates resistance. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much for your insights. It was great to get to know your work. And I hope you have a good time here in Uppsala. Thank you so much. Thank you. Just a quick note before our commentary to the interview. 
just pointing out that this interview was conducted on October 2019 and on a follow-up with the interviewee with Christina, we have gotten news that the multi-sectorial action plan for Cambodia was actually endorsed by the three ministries, the Health Ministry, the Agriculture Ministry and the Environment Ministry in December 2019, so a few months after this interview was conducted. So with that in mind, I'll leave you now with our commentary. Welcome back, everyone. Um, we hope you enjoyed the interview. Uh, we apologize for the sound quality because probably it didn't sound as good as you are hearing us right now. Uh, the magic of technology. but uh, We're improving uh, every day, so some of the older interviews tend to sound a little yeah, worse compared we're to the up, recording. We're catching up. <laughs> um, Jenny, uh, what did you think about this interview? I thought it was really interesting to get to hear somebody's firsthand experience with this sort of work. Right. So we've talked a lot about Uh, national action plans in different settings and situations. And it's kind of the sort of thing where I'm like, oh, it's just, it's, it's a national action plan. Okay, yeah, like moving on. But it, it was interesting to think about what it takes to really design one of these, to plan it, what you need to think about. Implementation is, of course, a whole other level. Yeah, what are the challenges? It was really yeah. interesting to hear firsthand. You know, I was really happy when I got to know about her work and that she was back in Sweden here mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, get the experiences. Yeah. And, and especially from a veterinarian standpoint. So... It really emphasizes how important this One Health perspective is yeah. in, in these sorts of things, that it not, it's not enough to have the human side of things sorted out. And like she said, I mean, if the legislation isn't brought across all fields, that if, for example, the legislation in the fisheries or animal husbandry sorts of departments doesn't match what is in the human medicine, you get these kind of discrepancies that maybe confuse people or maybe allow things to be misused. Yeah, because there, it can also be loopholes, like she was yeah. mentioning that, yeah, maybe you are restricting the use in one sector, but you can mm -hmm. still get a hold of that same uh, compound in another yeah. sector and then use it as you wish. So exactly. it has to be some cohesion across. Yeah. yeah, And I think, especially when you're trying to communicate the importance of this sort of issue to politicians and other things, it's very important to have this cohesive legislation that works across the different sectors because then you can, I don't know, it becomes more realistic, more like understandable that, oh, this is important because we're covering it everywhere. Yeah. So the, kind of to to communicate the urgency or communicate mm -hmm. the importance of the issue that all the different sectors and the legislation are taking a stance on it. Yeah. So it's not just. But I think also in order to get across the message that this crosses boundaries, not mm -hmm. only nationally, but also sectorially, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Many, many bacteria don't care if they're an animal or human. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, the and the role that they play. And yeah. still, there's a lot that we need to know and that we are not 100% sure in the data of how much the environment plays a role mm -hmm. in the transmission or in the selection. Or, yeah. But we do have to get continuous work on that. And for that, we need to know that money needs to be put in those sectors mm -hmm. as well. And that it has to be, a, what would we say, one health perspective on yeah. the problem. This is kind of the similar thing. I mean, a lot of people's criticism against work on climate change, if people are kind of not climate change deniers, but maybe a little bit skeptical to how governments are handling climate change and trying to uh, counteract it, they tend to say, oh, but this sector has way more releases than this. And oh, it doesn't matter if I drive my car because this other thing releases so much carbon dioxide. But that's when I think it really helps that there's some cohesion between the different sectors. Like you see this, this is a multi-level attempt to try to handle the problem. We're not putting blame on one sector or the other, because in a lot of cases, we don't know mm -hmm. how much is attributed to anything. So we should most work together rather exactly. than blame each other's yeah. feels that, oh, it's, it's all because of the animals or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Try to really 
focus on what we can actually do to improve instead mm -hmm. than who's to blame. And I think it was it was just a really nice way to see her perspective on it. Yeah. And also, I really like that there was a lot focusing on communication, of course, because yeah. we tend to like that. <laughs> if you if you if you are not able to get people to understand each other and talk across mm -hmm. these different disciplines and these different very separated sectors, especially in certain parts of the world where yeah. they are radically not working together, to get them to understand each other and understand why what is happening in one sector actually affects the other, it is a massive effort and also very good to see that it's actually working. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was one interesting thing she brought up that she was talking about how, like, in the beginning, their role was kind of to force these different people to talk to each other <laughs> yeah, that was and collaborate. And then, like she said, once you got the ball rolling, then it moves on and it's not forced anymore. Yeah, people want to do it. Yeah, people, people want, want to. Work to. People that see way. The, the value in it and they move on. And it's not conscious effort to do it anymore. It just happens because you've seen the benefit. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really nice to hear, like, that you, you can get past this level of trying to force collaboration. And communication. Yeah. yeah. Mm. She brought up a few other things that I thought were kind of interesting that I think we should mention. Mm -hmm. uh, from other things, she mentioned glass pathogens. Ava, did you have a Yeah, so she definition? mentioned the glass, glass system, glass pathogens, and we wanted just to clarify what this is. So the glass system is the Global Antimicrobial Resistance Surveillance System. This means that um, there is a global data sharing on antimicrobial resistance that goes through worldwide. It was actually launched by the WHO as part of the implementation of the Global Action Plan on antimicrobial resistance. And the data that is generated is supposed to, or we hope it will help to inform national, regional, and global decision making. Also strategies and, of course, advocacy in the problem. Different countries around the world can actually join this system we will actually leave the mm -hmm. link in there i don't think that people that really work on this don't know about the glass but in case that you have never heard of it and you want more yeah. information you are going to be able to get it there but we thought it was also interesting to mention that it's not of course everything that wants to be monitored it will be a lot of data and a lot of difference so yeah. they actually focus on eight specific pathogens and also from four specific uh, specimens from the patients so the bacteria that are being monitored with these glass systems are uh, e coli Klebsiella pneumonia actinobacter species in general Staphylococcus, both aureus and pneumonia, Salmonella species, Shigella species, and Neisseria gonorrhea. And the specimens are taken from blood, urine, stool, and genital swabs. So mm -hmm. basically, this system is kind of monitoring worldwide or with the countries that are part of it, yeah. where these bacteria are, if they are present or not, and also if they're resistant or not. So kind of have this overview of how resistance moves across mm -hmm. and get data. So we thought it was uh, yeah interesting to mention. Because we've talked too. about the watch pathogens and the escape pathogens. There's, all these, There's a lot uh, of these acronyms of different pathogens. Yeah, so. But just to clarify what this is, and I mean, this is tying into basically making surveillance data available. And this is something that you talked about with uh, Christina as well, mm -hmm. that you kind of, there's some things you, you need to know in order what's to going work, on right? so you can work on it. So that was the first step. Yeah. The first step is actually monitoring. And that's what she actually was working yeah. on. We will leave the link to her study as well that we mm -hmm. mentioned through the interview, which is what is the situation? Yeah. What is here? And then from that, we can take actions. So, and of course, yeah, yeah always before it's been in humans, but now trying to implement it also in animals and yeah. uh, the environment, of course. Mm. I thought also it was interesting. She brought up this example of, we were talking about different examples of legislation, things that can be done to try to change things. And she brought this example in India where they started putting red labels on critical antibiotics. And I thought that was a kind of interesting way to do it, to like bring attention to anybody kind of managing the box, mm. how important this thing is. This is also communication strategy, right? Yeah. Is, uh, and I mean, we use it for certain kinds of like health risks and stuff like that. Like there are black box warnings in 
the FDA that this is a potentially toxic drug and that sort of thing. Or like with good. tobacco when they put these like exactly. these images that really like sugar you to the core or yeah. like this color. So it's like trying to make you yeah maybe think twice. Think, be aware. Something. And I mean, I haven't seen myself how this label actually looks like, but I thought it was a pretty cool idea. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that could help even even when you are prescribed by a doctor that drug that you understand. This is something that you care about. Yeah, and maybe also Mm -hmm. if there's leftover pills, it's an extra reminder of, okay, should I bring this back to the pharmacy? All that sort of like, all the downstream management that we maybe kind of forget about sometimes. Yeah, so kind of make it stand out. Yeah. Not like it's just a ibuprofen pill or Mm -hmm. paracetamol or something. This This is a drug that is precious and we have to take care of it. There was one more thing that I thought was really interesting when you guys talked about the communication strategies and the difficulties in communication, how in the beginning there was this discrepancy between or misunderstanding about residues and resistance. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of ties into a bigger thing of what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, yeah because actually I was very, or it was very curious that she said that in their language, mm-hmm. It almost translates to the same thing. There is some yeah, similar. It came partially from a misunderstanding in translation. Yeah. But also from linguistically, but a general fear of residue, chemical yeah. residues. But uh, this is something that is not just restricted to Cambodia or yeah. Thailand or, or other countries. This is something that even happens in the Western world mm-hmm. when people mention this confusion between what does it mean to use antibiotics in animal Mm-hmm. Uh, or meat production and this I want antibiotic free meat yeah. many people actually were thinking is that oh I don't want to have meat that has antibiotic residues in yeah. it but this is in general you know what we're talking about when we're restricting the use of antibiotics in meat production it's not to avoid that antibiotics are going to be present mm-hmm. in the meat that gets to the supermarket which is already very controlled and this yeah. is definitely not happening you can't send meat for slaughter basically if it's been if the animal has been treated with antibiotics within a certain amount of time because of residues. This has this been is very, in regulation very for a long yes. time. At least, I mean, at least in the EU, I don't know how it is everywhere, but I think in many parts of the world, it mm-hmm. is very regulated and has been. Whereas what we're saying is that, or the majority of the consensus, we should stop using antibiotics in the animal husbandry and the meat production because we don't want to select for resistant yeah. bacteria in those animals. And on top of that, also this important important difference, and this is something that you guys mentioned in the interview as well, we are absolutely not talking about not treating sick animals. That's unethical to not treat sick animals. It's unreasonable if we're going to have animals in this way with animal husbandry, you have to take care of the sick animals. But using antibiotics irresponsibly and as growth promotion, preemptively, all this sort of thing, maybe treating entire flocks instead of treating actual sick animals. Yeah. It's the the prophylaxis yeah. type of use of antibiotics which is going to start be banned in also yeah. some places. But of course, uh so one thing that in the Nordics has been really focused on for some time is what can we do in animal husbandry? Not only of course if you get a sick animal you need to treat it, mm-hmm. but what can we do to reduce the frequency that these animals get sick, right? A healthy and happy animal is not going to need antibiotics. Yes. If you manage the animals well, then they don't get sick as much. I mean, there's an example with uh, pigs. If they have proper hay in the barns where they're living, then they get less um, sores on their feet and they don't need treatment for the infections and sores on their feet. It's more moving on to, okay, how do we prevent the sores on their feet instead of then saying that we need to treat them later? Yeah, I mean, it's w- what we come back to that I think, uh, yeah, John Rex in the previous interview, he actually also mentioned very clear that for years and years and years, we've been using antibiotics as a substitute for 
hygiene and sanitation, yes. both in humans and also in yeah. animals. And also kind of to justify maybe mistreatment of animals. I mean, I don't think anyone can argue that taking better care of the animals and making sure they get less infections is unethical for the animals. I mean, they they nobody wants them to get sick unnecessarily. No, Even but it's much it. easier to put a lot of animals together in one exactly. place, uh, produce more meat, even though they might get more sick because you have antibiotics that you can use to treat them yeah. if they get sick. But that's really not the way. And no. we are really proud that here we've been taking a stance since a yeah. long time ago that this is something that is important and this is something that governments need to be putting money mm-hmm. on. So the farmers have the chance to have healthy animals. Yeah, and not this unfair competition. I mean, that they have to be able to do this reasonably and responsibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to emphasize this thing of the fact that an animal has been treated with antibiotics is not necessarily bad. But when it's been done for the wrong reason in the wrong place in the wrong way with the wrong drugs, yeah. mm-hmm. that's the problem. Yes. <laughs> but this also kind of ties into this um, concept of communicating risks <laughs> to people. This is a huge difficulty in science communication is communicating risks. And that's extra relevant right now in the situation that's going on in the world with the coronavirus that falls a bit outside of our scope, so we're not going to talk much about that. But it's very hard to communicate to people what the risk is for them while not scaring people, but also saying this is what you can do and this is why and this is what you should be afraid of. Yeah, because it's not just about also the communication, it's about the understanding that happens on the other way, in the other side, right? It's a two-sided communication. It's not just the person spreading the information, but it's also how it's interpreted by the individual who's receiving it. We as humans are pretty bad at numbers. So when we are presented with percentages and with probabilities and with, it's really hard and difficult to Mm -hmm. grasp what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my community? What does that mean? And even those of us that work with the statistical analysis in our daily jobs, I swear every year I forget how this stuff works (laughs) and I have to look it up again. So I'm not not saying that we're any better than anyone else, but it is... Part it's of the difficulty yeah. is trying to communicate risks and th- also reasonably communicate what can you do about it. And this kind of ties back to the welcome trust uh, communication piece that we talked about before. Reframing resistance. Yeah. Reframing resistance. Yeah. Like when you're communicating about something scary and something serious, it's important to bring up what you can as an individual do, mm-hmm. but also to frame this within reason, Yeah, I guess, and talk about risks and maybe... Well, the risk to you as an individual, in the case of AMR, the risk to us maybe isn't that big, but the risk for future populations, future mm-hmm. generations is much bigger if we keep acting as we do without change. Well, in, for example, the coronavirus case, we're talking about risk groups and risk populations that are at risk now. Mm-hmm. And that can be a little scarier, but it's a similar thought process of I need to do this, maybe not for me, but for, but for someone rest, else. Yeah. Mm-hmm be it someone in the future or somebody now. Mm -hmm. It is something to think about, definitely. And we encourage you all out there listening to us to read about this as well and be mindful about the data you receive and the information you are being exposed to all day, every day with this uh, big crisis that's happening around the world. Keep yourself aware, but think about where the information is coming from as well. Yes. Try to... Things that are difficult to understand, maybe also you can... Reach out to professionals in areas that you might know, mm-hmm. statisticians, mathematicians, um, Even doctors, doctors. Yeah. Uh, I would say scientists, depending on the area as well. Yeah. But just try to get the right information and try to have conversations that make you understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, with that, I think we uh, have covered most of the yeah. interview and the things we found pretty interesting from it. Uh, we hope you enjoyed and we're going to move into the news that we have a couple of very Exciting things to talk about today. See you. 
Hi everyone, so welcome to the news section. This is a particularly special and different news section. You probably are hearing us a little bit different than what you just heard uh, in the commentary to the interview. Yeah, not, not as clean, not as, not yeah, as the same. <laughs> <laughs> this is because right now I am uh, at home and Jenny is also at her home. So we are keeping social distance from each other but still <laughs> ongoing our, of course, work duties. So we basically are each one in our kitchens and, and living rooms with headphones, very big headphones and not the normal microphones that we normally use. So that's why maybe it sounds so bad. And if there's some glitching or something, you, you know why it is. Yeah. Uh, with this, we just want to, of course, acknowledge that since we recorded the commentary to the interview, the situation around coronavirus has become worse and there is a lot of people that have to work from home. There's some parts of the world where maybe measures like this have not really been taken yet but uh, we from here encourage that anybody that can actually work from home even if it's not as comfy as being in the office then it is better to work from home and try to keep the contacts to a minimum so maybe we can yeah. get to a better situation sooner rather yeah. than later. <laughs> we can add that I mean here where we're based in Sweden, it's not a government directive yet to work from home, but it is encouraged and we're taking that very seriously. So we're staying at home because we can, because we have that yeah. luxury and because it makes it easier for everybody else that doesn't have that luxury. So Exactly. So with this, we go ahead and we will start uh, talking about a couple of research articles this time, actually. And I am very excited because today we're bringing to you the two first official UAC published articles. Uh, from two of our PhD students. So you know how the USC is set up. We have a research school. We have 14 PhD students. They started all within 2017. So of course, publications don't come quickly or easy. So now uh, our students are starting to publish. So we have two exciting studies. So Jenny, uh, can we start with the first one? Can you tell us what we're going to talk about? Yeah, so the first article that we're going to talk about is called A Multiplex Fluidic Chip for Rapid Phenotypic Antibiotic Susceptibility Testing. It was published in MBio on the 25th of February of this year. Like you said, it's a UAC uh, PhD student. There's also a current lab member of mine on this paper, so a little in-house, but it, it's a really interesting paper, and I think it's a really interesting diagnostic test that they've looked at. So basically what they did was, as you can kind of tell from the name if you know what these words mean, they looked at a way of testing for antibiotic susceptibility, so if an antibiotic is going to work against an infection or not, in a way that's much quicker than the standard ways we do this. So one of the main problems with standard antibiotic susceptibility testing today is that it can take days to get results. You're basically waiting to see if bacteria grow in presence of antibiotics or not. And this is a pretty time-consuming, if not, I mean, it's inexpensive, but it's time-consuming. So Ava, do you want to tell us a little bit about how they set up the system? Yeah, so this is actually um, a test that they have validated before, but in a very small scale and basically just checking that they can actually build this machine because it's actually a machine where basically what they do is to have a gradient of antibiotic in a sample, like in a microfluidic chip. That means that it's really small and it has these little tubes with uh, media that has antibiotics either from a specific concentration to zero concentration. And what they are actually looking is if when they put the sample and they micro colonies start growing, then what they can actually with a microscope look all the time into it and then 
see at which speed these microcolonies are growing and at which concentration these microcolonies stop growing and there is no more growth. So basically, in broad terms, they can actually see with this microscope where the bacteria colonies are not growing anymore or at which rate are they are actually growing. And with that, assess if an antibiotic will work or not work to kill that specific bacteria. As I said, they have validated this before. They have actually tested it. But with this article, what they actually look into is into making a multiplex system. That means that they can test several samples at the same time and yeah. also against several antibiotics, which is what is actually a need in the clinic. Otherwise, yeah. it would be very time consuming as well and very material consuming to have a whole machine for one sample, one antibiotic, basically. Yeah, no, it's a, it, they've definitely scaled it up to something that's more reasonable to assume would be useful in the lab. In a clinical lab. So they actually tested the system with three different bacteria, E. coli, Klebsiella pneumonia, and Staphylococcus aureus. Two of them are gram-negative, E. coli and Klebsiella, and one gram-positive, Staphylococcus. And they actually tested it against six different antibiotics. Amikacin, septacidine, and meropenem for the gram-negative treatment, gentamicin, ofloxacin, and tetracycline for the gram-positive. What they actually wanted to see if they can actually run this multiplex and in parallel and also validate that I can take less time than the standard yeah. way of testing for this. And Jenny, can you tell us what they found? So what they found in the end was that compared to this standard testing way that takes like two to three days turnaround times, they found that they can in general be able to determine if something's resistant or not in two to four hours. And this was relatively stable that they could find this within two to four hours. And now they do specify that there's some slow growing bacteria that this might take a longer period of time, but you can tell like, obviously the difference between two to three days and two to four hours is huge and it could really be an advantage. What they found in general is that it was close, like the values that they found were close. They ended up being called the same most of the time as the old standard testing. So what we mean by that is they're called either susceptible or resistant or what's in between there, which is a long name, <laughs> but it's in general, like what they found is that it seems to work. It maybe isn't perfect. It maybe needs a little bit more uh, tweaking for special cases. If you find out that with one type of antibiotic, depending on how it works and how the bacteria is resistant, it might take more time to determine a precise minimum inhibitory concentration, which is what they're looking for here. So basically the concentration of antibiotic where the bacteria no longer grows. But it is definitely an advantage. And especially, I mean, they bring up the example of sepsis, which I think is very good, that it really matters that you can get an answer quickly to whether or not a bacteria is resistant. Yeah, because in sepsis, for every hour that there is a delay in natural successful treatment, the chances of this patient surviving decreases hour by hour by hour. Yeah. So of course, we want to have something that can be used as quick as possible. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, as we say, the standard test, it takes two to three days. And the doctors, what they do, of course, is not just not treat the patient until these results yeah. come. But there is what is called the empirical therapy, which they basically guess with their experience what type of uh, infection the patient might have. And they give yeah. uh, treatment for that in general, just normally is a broad spectrum treatment so they can kind of work for many different things that the patient might have but this is what we want to reduce we want to reduce the use of these broad spectrum drugs that are 
need it really, really when nothing else works. And yeah. we want to give therapies that we know will work and are specific for the type of infection that the patient is having. Yeah. And they compare this to um, another method of testing, because this is a type of phenotypic testing. In other words, how the bacteria actually, like what kind of resistance you actually can see, basically. Uh, what they compare it to is other types of testing that look at genetic resistance. So basically, can you tell that a bacteria is going to be resistant based on its genetics if you do whole genome sequencing, for example? And I think they do a nice comparison there that, I mean, there are whole genome sequencing as a base for antimicrobial resistance testing can be useful, but there's always the downside of if there's a new mechanism of resistance, if there's a new way that bacteria become resistant, or a combination of several re mechanism resistance that maybe leads to the bacteria becoming more resistant than it would have just from the individual ways. It can be really hard to predict this sort of thing based on the genome. Yeah, basically it's that genotype, even though we have a really good idea of what that can mean, not yeah. always relates to a specific phenotype. Yeah, and it can be very hard to predict this. We aren't really at the stage yet where we can really predict this well, I would say, maybe mm -hmm. to the degree where we would trust it in a clinical setting. And that's also the kind of thing like it can help, but it may be they would still want to do the phenotypic testing as well. Exactly. So a lot of this is kind of in addition to what we already have, but anything that gets a little bit faster can be useful in certain settings, especially sepsis, for example. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. So very interesting. Uh, this is an open access article in Empire, so we're going to leave the yeah. links to it. And if there's any coverage as well, uh, we'll mm -hmm. leave that there. And with that, we move towards our second article. Yeah. So Ava, do you want to tell us the title of this article and where it is? Uh, yes. So this is an article published in the journal Diabetes Care with the title Early Childhood Antibiotic Treatment for Otitis Media and Other Respiratory Tract Infections is Associated with Risk of Type 1 Diabetes, a nationwide registered based study with siblings analysis. And this article was published on the 4th of February of this year. Uh, this is a, an article by one of the PhD students, as we mentioned, at UAC. This is actually uh, one of these examples of a bit of multidisciplinary work. This PhD student, she is a statistician uh, by training. And of course, this relates statistics together with clinics, outcomes, health. So all these kind of things that we try to promote as well. The principal investigator of this work is an epidemiologist as well. So different disciplines working to get to this work. A little bit talking into what they are looking into and what results they have. Can you tell us, Jenny? Yeah, so, well, and basically what they're looking at, which you can kind of tell from the title, is if antibiotic treatment in small children or in pregnant women during the development of the fetus can lead to type 1 diabetes in children. And just a reminder, so type 1 diabetes is a chronic disease that's thought to be caused by an immune attack on insulin-producing cells. So this is what was sometimes called childhood diabetes or other things. It's not the kind of diabetes that you develop in, when you're an older age and from lifestyle decisions. This is basically from when you're born. And the um, idea that antibiotic treatment might be related to autoimmune diseases comes because it's been shown that the flora in the gut, it's very important for the development of a healthy immune system. Yeah. So the thought behind it is that maybe if this gut flora gets affected by antibiotic treatment, which is not really targeting the gut flora, but it's targeting other type of infection in the body, mm -hmm. and then this gut flora gets affected, then there can be an effect into how the immune system develops. And one way to maybe look at it is to see if this type 1 diabetes development correlates or doesn't correlate, or there's an increased risk of this type 1 diabetes when the children have had 
an antibiotic treatment when they were young. In this case, actually, they look in the first year of life of this. Yeah. Treatment. And they did this by looking at different national registers in Sweden. So this is based on uh, Swedish children. And they looked at, for example, antibiotic prescriptions and insulin prescriptions and birth details and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that they actually looked at all children born in Sweden between the years 2005 and 2013, which was... All the babies. All the babies, uh, which is almost 800,000 children. So this was not like a small study in the slightest. But they did, of course, have to discount certain children based on certain parameters and everything. And this was, I guess, completely done from national registers. So it wasn't like an active study in that sense. Uh, they found that 24% of all children in the study had at least one dispensed prescription of antibiotics in the first year of life, which is quite interesting. But what I actually found was most interesting in, about the antibiotic prescriptions was that they actually found that it's decreasing. So over this range of years, they found that the antibiotic prescriptions decreased, which kind of goes to show that the efforts in Sweden to reduce antibiotic prescriptions is working. And especially for some of these kinds of infections, they're not really often seen to have a huge beneficial effect. Yeah, we have to mention that this is the strong and very good work that the Strama Network has done in Sweden yeah. that started early on in the 2000s, well, early in the yeah. uh, 1990s, but that actually has steadily decreased the amount of prescriptions in the primary care from the early 2000s to now. And mm -hmm. that's actually seen in this, in this data as well. Yeah, and like we said in the title, I mean, this was looking at treatment for otitis media, so ear infections and other respiratory tract infections. So this is maybe oftentimes cases where antibiotics may not be helpful, not severe cases like sepsis or anything like that, where it obviously could be helpful. Especially uncomplicated cases of yeah. this type of infections. Exactly. All in all, though, they found that at the end of 2014, that 1,297 children had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and they found that children treated with antibiotics in the first year of life had about a 19% increased risk of type 1 diabetes during the follow-up. And when they looked specifically at children who were born via C-section, the risk increase was larger, which is pretty interesting. It was a little bit, I think it was nice that they pointed out that the absolute risk of type 1 diabetes was still quite low. And that mm -hmm. antibiotics are likely only to make a small contribution to this. So it's not like it's describing all of the effect or anything like that. It's only mm -hmm. this might have a small contribution and for this small number of people, but it's still an interesting result, I find. Mm -hmm. They also point out that they can't separate whether it's the actual infection that the antibiotics are treating or the antibiotic treatment itself that's causing this increase in risk. So it doesn't really say exactly that antibiotics are causing this increased risk of, of type 1 diabetes. What they're saying is that there's an association and that it might be the infection or it might be the antibiotics. You don't know. Yeah, we don't really know what caused it. It's just we can yeah. say that there is a correlation between the exactly. increased risk to develop this uh, autoimmune disease and what has happened early in the childhood, be it the infection or the antibiotic treatment. Yeah. Although the hypothesis is that because we have treated that infection. There's been a side effect of also affecting the flora uh, in these very early uh, stages of developing an immune system. And if the flora is important to have a healthy immune system, hence it could be the reason. Yeah. But we don't really have the data and it's not looking into that. No, but it is a logical hypothesis. I mean, otherwise ear infections causing type 1 diabetes feels a little bit maybe not that likely. I, I mean, it's, it's reasonable to think that it might be because the actual antibiotics and the effect on the normal flora in the gut. I mean, that's also, this is more on a personal note of my thoughts, because they see that there is a higher effect on C-section babies as well, yeah. which 
C-section babies are thought to have a different flora from the moment they are born because mm -hmm. a lot of the seeding of the initial flora in the baby's cons because it's going through the vaginal channel during delivery. And then that maybe C-section babies do not have the same type of exposure to flora from the very early on of their lives. So that could also be another indication that is this setting up of a proper flora in the baby that might lead to potential autoimmune diseases or increased risk for autoimmune diseases. Yeah, that's true. It does kind of tie together relatively well, the fact that both the there was an increased risk with antibiotic treatment and that risk was larger in C-section babies. babies. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was a really nice study. They really look at a huge population to do this. And this mm -hmm. is the kind of thing that only a true statistician can do. So that's good multidisciplinarity. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting, like this kind of these kind of studies that really tie together different things. It's antibiotic and diabetes and looking at two fields that have a lot of research separately, but maybe don't often overlap that much. Yeah. And also maybe also the notion, you know, that uh, antibiotics, yes, they're very good when there's infections they are needed but they might have more side effects than what we already previously thought they were doing. Of course, yeah. everybody has more or less suffered, you know, from uh, stomach problems after taking antibiotics. The flora, of course, gets uh, affected. Some women might have thrush as a side effect yeah. of taking uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics as well. All the flora that is really important in different parts of our bodies gets affected. So these a study, I think, also highlights that we should be mindful that we shouldn't just take antibiotics like candy yeah. <laughs> because they have potentially serious side effects as well. Yeah, they're incredibly useful, but they're not worth taking just because there's always mm -hmm. a potential risk. Uh, but yeah, so, hopefully... Very good. Yeah, we'll leave a link to this article. With that, we have one more article we'd like to mention briefly. We might mm -hmm. not talk about it too much now, but it's a nice review for anybody who wants to know more about antifungals. Ava, do you have the title for that one? Yes, I do. So yeah, as Jenny mentioned, we wanted to mention it here because of course we are called the AMR studio, which means yeah. antimicrobial resistance. And antimicrobial resistance does not only include, of course, antibiotic resistance, which we talk extensively about here, but it's also about drugs that we use for, for example, fungi. So this is an interesting review article published on 11th of February of this year in Nature Review Microbiology, and it has a title, Drug Resistance and Tolerance in Fungi. So this is a very broad review of anything that is out there that we know at the moment about not only resistance, but also tolerance in fungi. So it's basically looking at what we know out there about resistance to fungal infections instead of bacterial infections, which they might not be as prevalent as uh, bacterial infections, but they can also be very serious and they can cause a lot of uh, distress uh, in yeah. In patients. And we have mentioned that there's an ongoing increase in um, Canada ORIS cases in different parts of the world. And this, yeah, this is a fungi that is a lot of times extensively resistant to these antifungals. So this is an interesting and pretty relevant article for the time. There's a lot going on right now in the world, but this is still something we shouldn't forget about. Uh, and also we wanted to mention that for those of you like we talked about in the commentary, we're not going to talk a lot about uh, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 or any of that because we, we talk about antimicrobial resistance and that's unfortunately, we're not talking about resistance there, we're talking about a totally new infection. So it's a little bit outside of our scope of what we know very well and neither of us are biologists, so we're not super comfortable talking about it a lot. But 
there is a source that we have that you can get a lot more information from. There's a massive open online course right now being given by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine on COVID-19. That's, I believe, doing multiple enrollments, right? It started as of when we are recording yesterday. So it was on the 23rd of March, the first time, but they say they're going to do more uh, enrollments and start it again at different times. I highly recommend it. We can leave a link to it as well if you want. Yeah, it's to... completely free, of course. Yeah. And it's not so much time intensive. It's, it lasts three weeks with three hours of uh, hands-on work per week. So it's not mm -hmm. that much. And it's a course that basically gives you background knowledge on COVID-19. How did it emerge? How was identified? What are the public health measures that are taken for this uh, outbreak worldwide? And what is actually needed to address this huge public health issue? Uh, going forward. So it's a pretty yeah. comprehensive and we really trust this source of information. Mm -hmm. The London uh, School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is very well known. It has really good professionals. We have interviewed some of the people working there before. Mm -hmm. So if you really want to get information, want to learn more about this, please check it out. And since now everybody working at home, they are coming up with courses and stuff like that. If yeah. you really want to put the time to this, it's definitely worth it. I can tell you I've been doing it while I'm at home during lunch because I'm not socializing with people during lunch so it's a nice little break from other work work on that course during lunch uh, and it really it's for anyone regardless of your background they if you don't need a science background to follow along it's actually very they don't make it too simple and they do point out at some points at some points that they use certain jargon terms but it's overall you can definitely follow along and I highly recommend it that's great so maybe I watch actually will check it out as well because yeah. <laughs> I'm you just playing the ukulele too. during my lunch breaks. So maybe <laughs> I can do this. Uh, okay, everyone, I hope that you are staying safe, that you're staying healthy, that your loved ones and your family are not suffering very badly from this outbreak and this pandemic. Uh, we hope that the next month episode will maybe won't be recorded in this uh, setup because that would mean that things are getting better. But in any case, so you know, we won't stop working on the podcast. Yeah. So if there is anything that will not get, get cancelled is the publication of this podcast because we can still work on it and we can record remotely. And it's not like all these meetings and all these conferences that are actually getting cancelled, unfortunately. So this yeah. is going to still be there and hope to make one hour a month a little bit less boring, if to say, <laughs> if you are actually having a lot of downtime because of the situation we're living in right now. So yeah. thank you for being with us. Just be patient with our sound quality is all I could say. It might yeah, not that's always be great, thing. but we're doing our best with what we have. And of course, if you have any questions, any comments, anything, you can email us directly or you can actually follow up a live conversation on Twitter as well because we're always there and we can answer any questions you might have. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank See you, you next month. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>